If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Genesis. Um, we're looking at Genesis on Sunday mornings, and I thought it was a good idea um, to try and talk about Christmas in Genesis. Um, and last week we looked at Genesis 3.15, um, the first pronouncement of the gospel that one was coming who would crush the head of the serpent. I love to think of the Old Testament saints who were looking forward to the serpent crusher. And praise God, we know the serpent crusher. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let's pray before we read God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look forward to his coming again in his precious name. Amen. So I'm going to read a couple of verses dotted around and I'll be coming back and forth. But we'll start at Genesis 5 and just read two verses. So if you have your Bibles, just the Genesis 5. Uh, we looked at this about a year ago when I was going through it, but looking at it slightly differently. Genesis 5 and verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And if you flick over one chapter to chapter 6, Genesis 6, and then verse 9, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. From the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And in chapter 7, the next chapter, reading from verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Jump forward to chapter 9, Genesis 9, and verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Uh, we're looking at Christmas in Genesis. And my thinking is simply this, that Christmas is all about Jesus. The whole Bible points to Jesus and something would be very wrong if we were able to go to the book of Genesis and find he was missing from there. But it's worth considering that the apostles in their day would have never understood the question, which you've probably been asked this week and you probably have asked it yourself, are you ready for Christmas? The, the apostles would have not understood the question. They would have not understood what was being asked because for the first 100, 200, 300 years of the church, the developing church, there was no such thing as the celebration of Christmas. Scottish people have kept that going a little bit longer. Sorry to my Scottish friends. But, and not all Scottish people, but some. And, but sensible people around the 4th century decided that it would be good for us to consider the Advent, which is the, an English word from the Latin word which means coming. That's what Advent means. And when they began to consider the coming of Christ, they did so with a dual focus. Not simply looking back to the incarnation, but looking forward to the fact that the same Jesus who came as a baby in Bethlehem is coming again in power and glory. And I think that's really, really interesting that the first Christians who celebrated Christmas did so because they were looking back at the Incarnation and looking forward to Christ coming again. I'm not sure we all, all, always focus on that, that he is coming again. But that was what Christians first did when they celebrated Advent, was to give thanks for the Incarnation and to look forward to the return of Jesus. Are you looking forward to the return of Jesus? Are you ready for Advent? So as we progress in the New Testament, by the time we get to the letters in the New Testament, this is really plain, Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Or are you eagerly waiting to live your best life now. There's a massive difference between eagerly waiting for Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews is pointing out all our sins have been dealt with at the cross of Jesus and he will appear not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That raises the question, are we waiting for him? Which isn't the same question as are you ready for Christmas? It's possible to be ready for Christmas and not waiting for Jesus. And it's easy to be sentimental about the first coming of Jesus and regard the second coming of Jesus as a bit of a joke. And to scoff at the idea that there is a day when Jesus is coming again as promised. 
Last week we looked at Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelicum, the first announcement of the Gospel, the one who was coming, who would crush the serpent. The serpent in turn would bruise his heel. And from that point on, all the way through the Bible, right up to the coming of Jesus, there is this expectation by those in touch with God. I wonder, who will it be? Who will it be when he comes? And how will we discover that? And so, for example, every person that comes forward is at least a possibility. So that's why I'm looking at Noah. Because in Genesis 5:28 we have the birth and the naming of Noah. Later on, we have the birth and naming of Jesus. It's significant and significant in relationship to Noah himself. But if you notice the Genesis 5 verses I read at the beginning, when Lamech, father of son, called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah sounded like the Hebrew word for rest. And the restlessness that was part of life since the banishment from Eden, since the entry of sin into the world, is such that men and women would love to find rest from their toils. So with, with the arrival of Noah, the question is, is asked, is this the man? who will deliver the cosmos from the curse. And we know, we discover, that Noah was not that man, but he had a crucial part in the unfolding story of redemption. In Genesis 3, Genesis 4, we learn how sin impacts life, how sin impacts life on an individual basis, how sin impacts life within the framework of the family and certainly within society. Sin spoils things. Sin ruins everything. Sin spreads. Sin separates. Sin spoils what God made good. The perfection of his plan for us, rejected by us. And we discover that the things that God has made in order that we might benefit by them are spoiled as a result of our sin. And that's not something that is limited in some locality, but it might be good just to picture it as a virulent disease, a contagion that spreads throughout humanity. Sin spreads faster than Omicron, whatever it's called. I won't ask you for the, what the anagram is of Omicron or I'll get into trouble, but it is moronic, but anyway. But, it separates not only man from God, but puts man in need of someone who will come to intercede. Someone will be that one to crush the serpent. And not only separating at that level between God and man, but separating at the horizontal level. Because the conflict lies behind every conflict, every argument between the husband and wife, every dispute between children and parents. What is the basis of that sin has entered the world and its impact is undeniable. In Genesis 4, we have a series of firsts. Sin has entered into the world. In Genesis 4, verse 8, we have the first murder. 
In verse 9, we have the first lie, outright lie. Where is Abel, your brother? I don't know. Cain goes on to say, am I my brother's keeper? Have you often, I've often thought about this, how many often times when people say, where is so-and-so, people say, am I my brother's keeper? It's not the greatest quote to use, actually, by the way. Because it was the first bang, outright lie. And he then provides us with the first expression of self-pity in Genesis 4, 13 and 14. Instead of Cain confessing his sin, he feels sorry for himself. And in verse 19 of chapter 4, you have the first polygamy. Lamech took two wives. He wasn't supposed to take two wives. And in verse 24 of chapter 4, you have the first act of vengeance. Lamech said, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And on that basis, sin contends to make itself known. Genesis 4, there's no mention of the serpent. Mankind doesn't need a talking serpent to sin. The prompting to sin comes now from within. You fast forward to the book of James and what do we find? That it's, James says that it's out of our insides that these things come. Alec Motier has a wonderful phrase in his book, Look to the Rock, where he says what you discover in the balance of the text is that men and women were drawn on by the inner reality of a destructive magnetism. So that's sin. Sin has entered the world. Gen chapter 5 is 10 generations, and that brings us to chapter 6. And the three points I want us to see this morning is that the earth was corrupt, God's judgment was and is just, but his mercy is more. And I think that is the story that we're meant to see from these verses. The corruption of humanity, the destruction is an expression of God's judgment, but the provision of the ark is a representative of his mercy. His mercy is more. So first of all, corrupt earth. Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Outwardly, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The evidence of man's rebellion wasn't hidden away. It was obvious in the ebb and flow of life. Even as it is, it is obvious for us today. Wickedness, which is the predicament of sin, cannot be concealed. It's not hard to see the way in which sin so quickly expresses itself in the world. That's outwardly, but inwardly, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The devil may entice you to do things, but he cannot make you do it. Every sin is an inside job. And continually, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that mean that the only thing that can be expressed is evil? No, but it speaks to the fact there is no dimension of life that is untouched by sin. There is no part of my life, body, mind and spirit, that isn't impacted by sin. Because sin skews the way we think. Sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us hang on to grudges. Sin destroys. 
In Romans 8, Paul makes that perfectly clear. The mind that is set on the flesh is at enmity with God and cannot please God. So we need the Holy Spirit within us to change even the thought processes of our mind. The psalmist tells us the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He knows there is a God, but he says there is no God. He's talking to himself. There is no accountability. There is no one to whom he is referring. He thinks he can make his own decisions. No one is ever going to tell me what I can do with my body. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my destiny. That is sin. That is the rule of sin. Genesis 6, 11, The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. So that's the scene. That's the context. Secondly, God's just judgment. The earth was corrupt. God's judgment is just. The just judgment of God is here. It's difficult to read, but we must bow underneath it. I don't know about you, but every time I hear the Prime Minister say we must be humble before nature, my heart cries out we must be humble before God. We must be humble before God. And we must be humble before the just judgment of God. You see, it comes time and time again. The Lord said, I will blot out man. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh. I will bring a flood of waters to destroy all flesh. And what we discover is that the rest that was enjoyed in the garden has been taken over by a restlessness, a chaos that is pervasive and growing daily. There are times when we can't do anything about the chaos of sin. And it's a restlessness that is producing all of the things that we've seen in Genesis 4. And they're representative of what will deliver, develop from this point on. The restlessness of our world isn't hard to find. People are roaming to and fro, trying to make sense of life. Pinning all their hopes on Christmas. It'll all be great as long as we have Christmas. It won't be. They're trying to find hope. They're trying to find satisfaction. They're trying to do everything. Because sin has messed it up. Sick, sickness, illness is as a result of sin. Is a result of the fall. The world is so broken. And no one wants to address the real issue, which is the brokenness of our world. The real question is, why is it so broken? In the book of Job, God addresses Satan and says, where have you been lately? And he's now been roaming to and fro across the earth. No kidding. Exactly. Genesis 6, 17. For I behold, I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. This isn't a myth. The flood is not a myth. It was a divine tsunami. God controls the winds and the waves. And the people in the Old Testament were aware of that. God did so in the creation. He ordered the space and the place of the waters. You fast forward to Jesus on the sea. What is it that knocked the followers of Jesus on the deck? What manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? So God, who fashioned the waters 
in the beauty of creation, brings the waters into place and uses the same things as an expression of his judgment. But God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure any more than a father takes pleasure in disciplining his son. Any father who finds it pleasurable to discipline his son is not a father, is a sadist. There's no pleasure in this. So don't think of God somehow or another looking down from heaven saying, now I get a chance to do this. He takes no pleasure in it, but he is not indifferent to our rebellion. God is not indifferent to our defiance. God is not indifferent when we reject his mercy. God is not indifferent when we say, I do not believe for a moment in the very idea of judgment. Just because you don't believe it, it doesn't make it any less true. We believe in judgment. Oh, come on, we make judgments all the time. You've just got to look at the news. It's full of damning judgments on people. And I wouldn't be able to get from here to the M6, to Penrith, without making a significant number of judgments on the way people drive around me. <laughs> but if you look at two, 2 Peter 2, verse 2 Peter 3, 2 to 7, it says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that was existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And unless somebody sounds out the message of the Bible, unless someone is brave enough to say that the judgment of God is just, then the nominal Christianity of our day will continue to diminish and will eventually dwindle to nothing. Because there is no understanding of the mercy of God. We can't understand God's mercy unless we believe in his judgment. You can't have one without the other. God's judgment and his mercy are two wings on the fuselage. Both are present. And it's only in light of God's judgment that we can understand his mercy. What an amazing thing. When we reject, when we refuse judgment, which is justice, it's right. Justice for our rebellion. Then we find ourselves saying, well, I can see why God would want me as his follower. Because I'm an extremely talented person. I'm not talking about me, but I'm just saying that. And if I was putting a group together, I would definitely include me. It's an appeal to our sense of self-esteem. But this is very, very different. Paul, when he preached in Athens, they all left. 
And he was just at his closing point. He was just at his closing point. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So what is in here in Genesis 6, 7, 8 and 9 is a foretaste of what will happen at the end of time that God will execute his just judgment and his judgment perfectly fits our crime. In fact, perhaps the clearest evidence of our enmity with God is our unwillingness to accept that the judgment of God is just, deserved and real. So we have the corruption of the world because of sin. We have God's just judgment. But then, praise the Lord, his mercy is more. The earth was corrupt, the judgment of God is just, but his mercy is more. And we have here an, an expression of the patience of God, the amazing patience of God, the grace of God. It must have taken Noah a fair while to build the ark. I think I did this when, when I was taught, teaching it, but if you look up here, most churches were built like that. They were built to picture the ark. The ceiling is, is, the, you know, is, is the bottom of the ark. And that's why, and that to me, it's is, is really good to be standing here and thinking that we're safe. This is the ark. But it must have taken Noah a fair while to build the ark because it was such a big craft. It was approximately the length of one and a half football pitches. It was four stories high. There was plenty of room. And the ark had a captain. His name was Noah. How did he begin, come to be the captain? Genesis 6 verse 8, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. How did he find favour in the eyes of the Lord? It's a mystery, but the favour, the grace was unmerited and unexplained. What grace is mine that he who dwells in endless light called through the night to save my distant soul. For me to know God is unmerited and is ultimately unexplained. Why am I standing here this morning? with this message. God is not roaming the world looking for a crack force troop. He's not putting together the brightest and the best and the most significant. You would never deduce that from the Bible. It is a wonder, it is a mystery, but it is amazing grace that Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Verse nine, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Is that how you find grace? Is that how you find favour? No, no, no. Verse 9 is not an explanation of verse 8. Verse 9 is a consequence of verse 8. It is in light of God's favour and his grace. So it's with this captain of the boat that God makes a covenant. I'll establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. So that Noah and his family will know saving grace to preserve them in and from the judgment of God. He enjoys all these benefits in a way that is tied to his own keeping of God's commandments. When God's grace sets us free, it sets us free to worship him and to obey his commands. So Noah built the ark in obedience and he left it on the basis of God's word. Chapter 8, 16, go out from the ark 
you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. No, day after day. Imagine this. He and his small group working on this project. And you think about the people walking by. Hey Noah, what are you doing? Noah is described elsewhere as a preacher of righteousness, as of a herald. So what would he tell them? I'm building an ark. What for? For protection. Protection from what? From the flood. But there's no rain, there's no flood. There will be. You're crazy. That's how it would have gone. It's not even raining. You're nuts. And they'd go on their way and come back. Are you still building that thing? Yes, I am. I sang growing up, Mr. Noah built an ark, the people thought it was a lark. Mr. Noah pleaded so, but into the ark they would not go. Down came the rain in torrents. Down came the rain in torrents. Down came the rain in torrents, and only eight were saved. The animals went in two by two, the bear, the fox, and the kangaroo, all were safely stowed away on that great and awful day. Down came the rain in torrents. Down came the rain in torrents. Down came the rain in torrents, and only eight were saved. It will never happen, they said. We're living in a desert, and you're building an ark. You are an idiot. Well, my name is not Noah, but it's not uncommon for people to say that to me. Because the natural mind is at enmity with God. And one of the places that it's most clearly obvious is people saying, I buy some of your Christianity stuff, but I do not accept that there will be a judgment. What would you rather do? Are you going to spurn God's mercy? And go with justice? I want what I want. Be very careful what you want, wish for. That you get what you deserve? Be very, 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 very careful. God's mercy is more. God's mercy is what we need. Why did the people perish? Because they did not believe. They didn't believe the messenger. They didn't heed the warning. What did they do to perish? Nothing. And if you're outside of the ark, if you're outside of Christ, let me, what you, let me know what you have to do. Nothing. Because we are by nature lost. Wicked. Without excuse. Facing judgment. And in this moment, my friend, we're being reminded of God's mercy. His mercy is more. People do what they want to do. All around, people are doing what they want to do. If you're living in unbelief and you remain in unbelief, you will die in unbelief. I've been studying this week because a dear friend of mine went to be with Jesus. But our, our hope is because we know where he is. We know that he has turned his eyes on Jesus. But that makes us all the more urgent and the stark truth of if you don't know Jesus you will die in unbelief so the decision that you've made for yourself to say that it is crazy it doesn't matter it won't happen that's the reason you'll find yourself there at the end 
And if you say to yourself, well, what about Jesus? I thought you were talking about Christmas. I thought you were talking about Jesus. Well, think about it. Jesus used Noah as an incentive in this very matter. Jesus believed and taught a literal Noah. Jesus taught, believed the literal flood. Matthew 26, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. We're in the season of Advent, we're looking to the coming of the Son of Man. Noah entered the ark, he shut the door of the ark. And the truth is, the real message of Christmas is that there will be a day when that door shuts, when the door to the ark shuts. When the door of opportunity closes and you don't know when that day will be. But let's forget that day just for a moment, because today is today. I'm so thrilled to say today is the day of grace. The mercy of God extends to you. And it is a sign, a wonderful sign. The ark is a picture of safety, of refuge, of rescue. There is nowhere else to go, my friend. There is nowhere else to go today than the loving arms of Jesus. There was only one place to go. And Jesus is the only place to go. Not one amongst many, the only. The ark, the ark of salvation. The ark comes to rest. And this is where I'm using the ark to point to the second coming. The door that had been closed open to a bright new future. The seasons will follow according to God's plan. Genesis 8, 28, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Pointing us, pointing us all the time to Jesus. Luke 2, verse 12, and this will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And the wise men set out and they followed a star which would lead them. The ark my dear friend, is a sign to us of the mercy of God. In the midst of his righteous judgment, which is saying, get in, get in. The door is open to the ark. The door is open today. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters will never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. I find it most fascinating, not on one occasion but more than one, that Rainbow has been commandeered. You'll always think that there is a devil behind the conflict who has something to do with the choice of the flag, the choice of that flag. 
which is the sign of God's mercy in the midst of judgment. Seized hold of in the midst of the conflict and turned into a very different story. But it isn't a rainbow, first of all, it is a bow. And it is a war bow. And it's a picture, a picture now of bow and an arrow. And the bow spans from place to place. And it's a reminder that God has established his covenant. Which direction does the bow point? It doesn't point to us, it points to God. Jesus took the arrow. Jesus took the sword. Jesus bore the penalty that I deserved. The war bow is pointed at God. He endured the hell so we can walk into his arms. That door, my friend, to the ark is open because he took the bow. If you hear God's voice, my dear friend, don't harden your hearts today. Get in. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. From sin, from the judgment. And people say, I don't think so. But until God works in your heart and you find yourself saying, I do believe. And I close by quoting Cliff Richard. We'll shout over all our sorrows and sing forevermore. With Christ at heart, his army, and that celestial shore. Get on board, little children. Get on board. There's room for many or more. My dear friend, there's room because today is the day of grace and the door to the ark is open. May God bless the word and we give thanks for Jesus in his precious name. Amen.